Hollywood is very pretty, but people grow old here. Not on the outside, but the inside. Marlena Dietrich Chapter 31 And so began my excavation from the quarry. Before I could read, I used to leaf through everything in the house that had illustrations, which ranged from Harry the Dirty Dog to the Divine Comedy. Thanks to the pictures, I had a rudimentary understanding of both. Then one day, when I was about five, my parents, probably tired of my constant read to me, demands, sat me down, opened a book, taught me how to sound things out, and changed my world. Suddenly, those inky hieroglyphs, words, marching across the page made sense. Not only were there endless stories told, there were worlds to explore, people to meet, and new ways of thinking to grasp. Jump cut to decades later. Books were a welcome respite from my life. I read, making up for lost time, three to four titles a week. I renewed my library cards, which I hadn't made use of since the library went digital a long time ago. At sunset, I would stand with a mylar-wrapped book tucked under my arm and watch as the heat of the September days post-hack would lift under the eucalyptus trees at the edge of the garden, far from the house. A breeze would stir through the silvery leaves and steadfast roses. Once I saw a rabbit, which turned to me and then came a bit closer, only to take shelter from a hawk under a chaise lounge. I knew better than to step forward, for then it would certainly dart into the predator's view. The bird sat in the branches of the tree, screeching. I used to see them all the time, especially then, arcing in the sky or diving to the earth. I saw them chased by crows and dancing through the air in pairs. I saw them with some unfortunate creature's wing in their beak. I saw animals they had dropped, headless and broken, on the sidewalk. This one kept enlarging its feathers like a guy in a noir film preening in a zoot suit. It would swivel its head and keep its eyes trained below. I couldn't tell if it was staring at me or looking for the rabbit. Eventually it got tired of its vigil and flew away. Something about the golden hour makes you notice these things. Something about watching for the sun to dip takes you back to being young. The long stretches of light, the nights that encompass dreams of forever. I remember being up in bed when I was 12, reading while the sky had turned the deep indigo of evening and scraps of conversation floating up from my parents in the garden below. Books still enchant me that feeling of traveling far, far away whilst being still. Journeys fueled by memory, a companionable or provocative map to an unknown future. Six months later, I was still reading other people's maps with no idea how to chart my own. As always, I probably should have paid more attention to Natalie, who, having read all of my email made shockingly public, urged me to pen a memoir. Why now, eight years later? I'm on the cusp of being considered high risk, approaching 60, for the coronavirus, and my significant other is a couple of years older. So, as much as I love him, it gives me something to do while we while away the many hours of our stay-at-home days. At the time, in 2012, while I was stewing about my, by all reasonable standards, extremely fortunate life, Mr. Booker made no comments about a literary career and invited me to spend a week out in the desert. 
We took walks in ancient palm canyons. Tyrone brewed tea in the morning, an hour before lunch, at four in the afternoon, and always after dinner. Those two were creatures of habit in the most delightful way. Tyrone always painted as the sun rose. Mr. Booker had a reading lamp set by a chair outside, and each evening his face and the volume in his hands would be lit pale gold against the silhouette of Mount San Jacinto. I remember, I remember thinking I wanted a photo of him just like that, and then one night he read to us from Aeschylus. Even in our sleep, pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart, until in our own despair, against our will, comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. He closed the book. Robert Kennedy quoted that in reference to his brother's assassination, while announcing the murder of Dr. Martin Luther King. Now, I'm not suggesting that any such tragedy has been visited upon you. What I am suggesting is there is a time to push ahead and a time to take measure. You want me to sit quietly and wait for the awful grace of God? Tyrone and Mr. Booker shared a glance. I would advise you to put yourself in a situation where you can receive what wisdom there is to be given, said Mr. Booker. Trouble was, and perhaps Mr. Booker knew this best, I had spent much of my life on the go. These last few months, sitting quietly like an obedient Victorian child, were an aberration. Striving for a state of zen-like contemplation was not in my nature. Thinking about it now, even my reading was frenetic. The more books I could absorb, the better I felt. The library staff and I were on a first-name basis. I knew their schedules, and they knew I would turn up between the hours of 10 and 11, Mondays and Fridays. I was always at my best, wide awake and surrounded by people, always, forever busy. Like Antoine. Little time to stop and think about anything but work. Like Antoine. Hmm. We had been on good terms after he completed filming. He even joked with me that he relished being my other walker after things got chilly between Cooper and I, especially for special events and photo ops. Then there were the days of the data spill and the subsequent publication of some of my or our juicier correspondence. He had accepted my apology adroitly and coolly. We had crossed paths when interviewed by the FBI, and while we spoke on the phone sporadically after that, we never saw each other in person. I wondered if I showed up in New York, where he headed shortly after the scandal broke, if he would see me. I knew that he had grown up there. He told me once of his grandparents' apartment on Park Avenue, across the street from his grandfather's club, their collection of attic pottery and linen cupboards full of iron sheets tied up in bundles with silk ribbons. The other set of grandparents lived above their barbecue joint in Brooklyn, which perhaps explains his culinary skills. And when Antoine's parents, Barbecue Boy and Ribbon Girl, wed in 1961, all hell broke loose. He told me it was ancient history, although he had moved to California to get away from the ripple of its after-effects. While I was thinking some kind of spiritual restitution was due, I picked up my phone, a new one since the hack, and dialed Cooper's number, immediately hanging up, just like a teenager. 
except teenagers were savvier now, and I hadn't paused to think before impulsively acting, that there would be a notification that I placed a call. I, whom he had been angry with since 2009. Maintaining strict radio silence was the least I could do to respect his boundaries. Getting away seemed a very good idea. I decided there was no better time, so I decided to head east, and if Antoine didn't want to see me, I would hop from New York to Gloucester to see my folks. They had to talk to me. How did I cross from Los Angeles to New York? Surrounded by people, but by the slowest means possible. I needed time to look out the window and think. I took the train, the Southwest Chief from Union Station to Chicago, and the Lakeshore Limited from Chicago to Penn Station. On the train, I met pastors and an 89-year-old translating the ancient philosopher Lao Tzu's Tao Te Ching into a narrative historical form. I met retired lunchroom ladies, romance authors, Amish families, people who explained how to bet on horses, and people who explained the science of optics, even a runner from Australia on his way to compete in the New York Marathon. I love sitting down to dinner with strangers, because no matter how different our outlook, our backgrounds, our beliefs, or our political stance, we found a chord at the table. It was primal. This was something Antoine had taught me, and it goes back to one of the things I think is most basic and most heartening about us. We always find connections while breaking bread. If there were a political movement where people shared a meal once a month under similar circumstances, it might solve a lot of problems. At night, we would go back to our seats or sleeping cars. Rocked by the rails in my roomette, with my ears stuffed with foam, I would sleep straight through eight hours, something I hadn't done in years. When the train rolled out of Rhinecliff, New York, on our way along the Hudson River, I called Antoine. I was sitting in the lounge car, watching the banks dotted with clapboard houses under great spreading, leafy, rain-nourished green trees. On the expanse of dappled and shining water, boats floated by, and Antoine answered on the third ring. Hey, Billy, what are you doing? Hey, Antoine, I'm on my way to New York. I'll be there in about two hours. Wait, what? Where are you? We just left Rhinecliff. Holy shit, you're on the train. Don't tell me. I did, all the way from Los Angeles. Antoine whistled. What in the world are you up to? Well, I've got some free time. I could hear him acknowledge my understatement with an "Mm mm-hmm. And I thought I'd see the country and visit some museums. Some museums? Antoine repeated doubtfully. I was hoping to see you too if... Wait for me upstairs. I was wondering if I'd miss something. What? I know what time your train gets in. Go up the stairs at the station. There's a main concourse and to the right and left shops and Amtrak waiting rooms. Just go up the stairs and I'll find you. The approach to the city by rail as night falls takes you from the picturesque to the concrete. Miles of track and rail equipment and holding yards lead to cavernous tunnels coated with soot lit by dim fixtures and wire cages, which empty into the underground, where passengers move in flows toward the stairs. Up the stairs I carried my bag, and then it rolled behind me over the smooth floors while I looked around on the brightly lit concourse for Antoine. 
People, all I saw were people on their way. And then he found me, tall and wearing city clothes. By that, I mean he had a scarf around his neck and a jacket, and he looked not at all Californian, yet completely like a New Yorker. I don't want to say it's a brittle quality he embodied. It was more like a buzzy, watchful kind of energy that I felt even before we stepped out onto the street and the city reached up around us. He took my bag and hold of my hand and announced, We're going on the subway. Oh, but where are we heading? The Upper East Side. He raised his eyebrow. I wanted to be walking distance from the Met. I can take a cab. No, I'm taking you. We wove as a unit through the crowd on their way into Madison Square Garden and down the wet, shining black pavement, pooled and swirling with reflected white lights from the buildings above and the street lamps below, back to the underground noise and rush. Seated tight, shoulder pressed to shoulder on the subway, our heads inclined together to hear one another, I asked, How are you? What are you doing with yourself? You look great. He was still hanging on to my hand, and he laughed. Good, intensive psychotherapy. Thank you. Antoine, stop apologizing, Billy. How did you know? (sighs) His exhale was audible. I've known you almost as long as that asshole, Cooper. I thought. The side of his head touched mine. It doesn't matter. What happened, happened. It got me here and it got me to pay attention to things I've been avoiding for a long time. Okay. Okay. I was wary and afraid what came out of my mouth would sound flip instead of serious, but I really wanted to know. All will be revealed to me in time? To which Antoine answered, maybe. In the morning, Antoine called for me at the hotel and we walked through Central Park on the path I told you about earlier, sheltered by elms, down past a garden shaped by boulders, and up a staircase to the Upper West Side. We squeezed our way into a narrow, tiled cafe that consisted of a bank of shining espresso machines, a glass case full of pastries, and a marble bar where we found seats at the very end. Antoine put our coats on hooks behind us and ordered apricot coronets and coffee. We went back across the park to the Met and saw kids thumbing their phones and staring at their screens, or adults rushing from piece to piece, and instead of pausing and looking up at the art, framing it through their devices, an electronic intercession, and then moving on. At the Frick, they checked coats and phones. The museum was once one of many ostentatious homes of a brutal robber baron with a taste for old masters. Even so, it was fine to walk around the quiet galleries with Antoine, who, stopping in front of two portraits painted 500 years ago, said, Philosopher, painting to one, and then the other, Pig. We walked on, looking for the Vermeers. The place was gloomy. Dark wood paneling, even the Rococo candy box-colored boucher panels were housed in a room with very heavy drapes. The central atrium, which should have been a light well, was topped by opaque glass and black arched iron in a grid. The robber baron's ode to perpetuity was getting on my nerves. Antoine, I said, I didn't really come here to see museums. We walked out of the museum into a nor'easter. 
I remembered that kind of crappy weather from my childhood, but then I used to dress appropriately for the cold. Nothing is so chilling as a wet wind that reaches through to your bones. Antoine wrapped an arm around my shoulders as we stood on Fifth Avenue. He raised his voice above the wind. You want to go back to your hotel? No, I want to go to your place. My cheeks were stinging, and I could feel my nose going icy. Where? He was looking at me with a puzzled expression. Your place. You have an apartment here or something, don't you? Antoine took off his scarf and wrapped it around my head. Think you can make it to the 72nd Street Station? He said, nodding the cashmere under my chin. I want to go in a taxi. It's faster by subway. It's freezing here. I'm cold. This fucking jacket doesn't even have pockets. I plucked at the inadequate thing with oversized buttons. Look. Antoine put both arms around me. I buried my face in his coat. I could feel it in the muscles of his shoulder, and then as his arm left my back, that he was hailing a cab. From Antoine's apartment, you could see the river. At first, I don't know which river, because in the cab I wasn't paying any attention to where we were going. His arms were still around me, and we were sharing the same breath and finding the contours of each other's mouths with our tongues. We were in a honeyed flow, and I could no longer feel the defining edge of time or place. In the cab, up against him, my fingers near his lips, he said, Birds can sing, but they can't dance. I remember squinting and leaning back to see, you know, to hear him better. What? At one point, an analyst told me I had to keep a dream journal. I was probably in my 20s. It was a notebook from college, the kind where you stick a pen or pencil down the spiral. Anyway, I kept it near my bed. If I had a dream, I would open the notebook no matter what time it was and write it down, then conk back out. There was this night. I remember I was in my 20s when I had the dream, the answer to all my questions, the meaning of life. Everything suddenly made sense. It felt so good. Problem solved. I woke up. It was dark still. I reached for the notebook without turning on the light, and I wrote it down. I went back to sleep. I felt, I felt only relief. I'd finally figured it out. I woke up goddamn euphoric with the sun in my face. I couldn't remember the dream, but I knew I'd written it down. I got my notebook, opened it to the page where I'd left my pen, and that's what I wrote. Birds can sing, but they can't dance. That's all I wrote. No details, just that one sentence. <laughs> That's all you wrote? That's all I wrote. I spent the night with Antoine. We shared a bed, but we didn't have sex. No singing or dancing. For one thing, as he explained, the medication I'm on, I can get cozy, but I can't come. And he also told me, Billy, you're an executor. I drew my knees up to my chest under the blankets. I'm a what? Thinking something horrible. I mean, he said, that you say you're going to do something and you do it. You execute it. You carry it off. I'm not at that point in my life. I'm not something you can do. I must have been smiling. Not that way. Billy, Billy, Billy. He kissed me again. You can't carry me off. I have to stay right here in New York and get my life straightened out. 
and that probably means at least another year or two visiting the therapist. You see what I'm saying? I think maybe you need to go home and execute some things there, right? I nodded. Antoine, you are an amazingly good guy. Then I put my ear against his heart and listened to it beat. Once home, I started sorting through my things. My long-time, once-a-week cleaning crew mopped floors and dusted surfaces while pretending incuriosity at my presence. An impression somewhat spoiled by the number of times I caught them glancing furtively in my direction. There were heaps, accumulated reminders of a life all around. Everything that served as an archival asset or a teaching aid for future filmmakers, I boxed and hauled over to the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Clothes, I donated. Books, I culled down to the essentials and gave the balance to the library. I avoided looking at my computer for days, ignored my constantly vibrating mobile, and turned off the ringer on my landline. I played music at all hours, danced when I felt like it, and slept in any room where I had spent the day organizing. If I couldn't quite see a plan to execute in my mind, I could in my house. And what about the house? It was ridiculously big. A home should be filled. Well, as Patsy noted, it should be filled specifically with children. I pulled all my papers from my files that I could find to deed the property over to Jake, his future wife, and my yet-to-be-born infant grandchildren. When I texted Jake the good news, he replied, Thanks, Mom, but I don't think I'll be needing a screening room. The issue of the house I put on hold. At the end of the day, I would examine my phone to return Antoine's calls and ignore Cooper's texts. Yes, ever since I'd made that call I'd hung up on, Cooper had been texting. Did I want quiet? Not really. I wanted to see my way forward, doing something. Something that gave my life shape and direction. Antoine was right. Mr. Booker was right. Yet I knew the kind of quiet Mr. Booker was recommending was something not to do with books or organizing my earthly possessions, but that fiddled around with an awareness within, which led to a transforming universal appreciation without, or something like that. Not really my forte. So I kept trying. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed the story, please tell a friend.